You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. All right, good morning, everyone. You all can find a seat. It's good to see everybody. Welcome to Providence Community Church. Uh, My name is Eric. I serve on staff here. And I just want to thank you guys for being here. Uh, As we say every week, it's so good uh, during this time to be gathering in person. So we're very excited to do that. Um, And yeah, so uh, just welcome to Providence. We are a people that are devoted to one vision, and that is to make the gospel of Jesus Christ unignorable in our city. Uh, To that end, every single week, we open up the word of God because we believe it has everything we need to be equipped to to love God and to love his people. And so, yes, we have started a series called The Great Eight. We are walking through Romans 8, looking at the promises of God in Romans 8, and as we kind of pray and walk through this together. Uh, So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn there to Romans chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 4, kind of mainly focusing on verse 3 and 4. There are some uh, pew Bibles in front of you. You can grab one of those if you need one, don't have yours. We'll be on page 944 in those Bibles. Uh, And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give that one to you as a gift. Uh, I just want to say happy Father's Day as well. Uh, if you didn't get anything for Father's Day, you can just grab one of those Bibles anyways, all right? And you can just take it, and that could be your Father's Day gift from us. So uh, that way you feel loved. But uh, no, I just want to say happy Father's Day to everyone. Um, yeah, so Romans 8, like I said, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. So uh, if and when you get there, if you're able to this morning, if you could stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word. So Providence, hear the Word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Amen. Good morning. I want to say happy Father's Day to everyone, all the pops in the room. Uh, We're glad and grateful for you. Uh, Thanks so much for making us a part of your week, especially if it is your first time here. Uh, My name is Court, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church And we're glad that you're with us. Like Eric said last week, we kicked off a sermon series entitled The Great Eight, walking through the book of Romans, chapter eight, uh, kind of verse by verse, line by line. And last week we talked, you know, Romans is like this theological mountain range. It's a massive book uh, with massive implications. It's got some rugged turns of phrase that Paul lays out for us in the scriptures, beautiful views of God's glory, his grace, his goodness. And Romans 8 kind of finds itself at the crux of that book as we turn from the first seven chapters, which is Paul laying out his kind of theological treatise about Christianity. And then Romans 8, he's going to begin turning towards uh, his imperatives or the commands, the, what, what should we now live like in light of who Christ is and what Christ has done. But Romans 8 has no, we talked about this last week, has no explicit commands in it. It's an interesting chapter of your Bible. It, it doesn't command you to do anything. It just continues to point back and to revel into all God has done for us in Christ. 
It's an amazing book. It covers massive topics, and we're going to be focused particularly on verses 3 through 4, but we read verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 because you can't really understand 3 and 4 unless you get the context of what we did last week. I want to encourage you, if you didn't have a chance to be here last week, uh, check out the podcast. You can kind of listen to that because we're going to be building each and every week. But before I jump in, uh, if you'll bow your heads with me, I'm just going to pray. Ask the Spirit to graciously speak to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you on this Father's Day that you have adopted us into your family. What an absolute grace and mercy it is that we can call out to you as Jesus taught us to pray, Father. And with the spirit of adoption, we get to request of you like you are our dad. And so, Holy Spirit, now we do request of you, would you... Would you come now, would you open our ears, open our hearts, help us to feel as you would have us feel, help us to see as you would have us see, to think as you would have us think. Forgive us where we've fallen short, my God, but but help us to not have dull hearts this morning, but instead to be wrapped up in just how amazing and awesome your grace is in the gospel. Help us to be shaped by it, formed by it, moved by it. And as we go about our week this week, help us to walk according to the spirit and not the flesh and fulfill the law of love that you've given us. We love you, God, and we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This morning, I want to talk a little bit about um, rule breakers. (laughs) because I think that's where the, the text actually goes. If you've ever met a rule breaker, uh, they come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, some rule breakers are kind of sneaky rule breakers. Um, like for instance, like this is the, the kind of person who is very meek and kind and, and loving and you're, it's the one that you pick to be the banker in Monopoly because nobody else wants to do it. And then like they're the one skimming at the end of the game, you know what I mean? You're like, not you, you know, those, those kind of rule breakers, all right? They're the ones who, they, they, don't, they don't ever end up like in jail in the drunk tank with you like when you're 19 or 20. They're the ones who end up like in federal prison for skimming off the top. You know, they got the billions of dollars. Uh, that's them, you know, the, the sneaky rule breakers. Then you got like the rule breakers that um, like, like myself when I was young, which is a little bit more loud, obnoxious, you know, stick it to the man in every way possible, always gets caught, kind of excited about that. Um, and, and, you know, those rule breakers, they, they get annoying. Uh, I am one of them. And then you get like the principled rule breakers. My wife's not here, so I'll throw her under the bus. I feel like she's a principled rule breaker. These are the people who love the rules. They, they love the rules until they just don't make sense to them. And if, the, if, she, if they feel like the rules are not as good as they could be, they will defiantly break the rules that are not as good as they ought to be. You know, you know these people? Like the, they, they look at policies and they're like, this policy is ridiculous. It should be better and therefore I'll break it. You know, even if it's like 50% good. Um, but they love the rules generally. And then you get like the vehement rule followers who are follow the rules no matter what. They hate the idea of being a rule breaker. Uh, they get a hard time in school and they end up being your boss later in life. Um, you know what I mean? <laughs> the, the, these kind of people. And yet they, they, they're the kind of people also, I always joke, um, I joke with my wife a little bit about this. There's the, the Les Mis, uh, you know, book obviously or play that 
turn into the movie with, with Hugh Jackman and, and you get the, the police officer who's chasing down, <laughs> chasing down the criminal. And then he realizes that there's this moment where he's extended grace and uh, he's not extended justice. And he, he ends up throwing himself off of the dam because he doesn't know what to do internally with being, you know, grace just doesn't work up in his categories. So he doesn't understand what to do with himself. So he just ends his life because he's such a rule follower. It's interesting that all of us at some point in our lives need grace and mercy because they're the truth is, and this is what Paul's going to make the case of here in Romans 8, is that we're all rule breakers at some point. We just have different shapes and sizes, like we all find ourselves breaking the rules. Um, and, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about that here. Paul's going to talk about the nature of rule breaking. He's, he's kind of already tipped his hand here, right? We get Romans 3 where he's already said that all of us are rebels at heart, uninterested in following God's law, only interested in suppressing the truth. But, but here he's going to give us a little more insight, and I think it's an insight that the Christian worldview uniquely has that no other worldview has. It's an insight into the, the nature, our relationship to the rules or the law, why our relationship to the law is the way that it is and how the gospel stands uniquely apart from just rule following or law following. And it's something entirely different than that. And so we're going to pick that up in verse three, Romans chapter eight. If you have your Bible, just kind of peek in with me here. We've already read it, but we're going to start in verse three. Remember that all of this is on the heels of what we've already read in verses one and two. So I'll, I'll, I'll read verse uh, one and two first, and then we'll jump into three. It says, there's no condemnation, therefore, now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then verse three, we're going to key in here. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Let's pause. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Now we have to define a few terms here because Paul's going to jump into some language that doesn't make much sense to us unless we have some semblance of an Old Testament understanding of the law. And then we also have to have a New Testament understanding of the flesh. But I want to start where Paul starts here in verse three. He says, for God has done. If you write in your Bible, you might want to circle that or underline that. And here's why, because the gospel is a message about what God has done. That's, that's really important. It's not just important, it's essential. It's at the very center of what we believe as Christians is the gospel's a message about what God has done, not a list of what we ought to do or a list of what we have done poorly. If, a, if the gospel were a list of what we have done, it would just be a, a moral record of our own evil, intentional and unintentional rule breaking. <laughs> but because the gospel's a message about what God has done, it's a pristine message of 100 proof industrial-sized grace. God has done this thing. Okay. But what has he done? He's done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could never do. So the law, whenever Paul uses the word the law, or you see the law in the Old Testament or New Testament, it can mean a few things, but it's really generally themed around the Old Testament. So you have the law could be seen as the whole Old Testament. You get this with like the law and the prophets. It could be seen as the first five books of your Bible called the Pentateuch, right? Written by Moses. Sometimes that's referred to as the law. Uh, other times it's the 613 ceremonial, civil, and moral laws that you get in those first five books. That's what you get with the law. Or sometimes when they say the law in the scriptures, it just means like the 10 commandments. You get this with the conversation with the rich young ruler. Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler and he says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, well, you know the commandments. And then he lists out like four or so of the 10 commandments. And the rich young ruler, of course, says, yeah, I've done those since my youth. 
Jesus responds back and says, well, there's one thing you still need to do. And he really gets to the heart of the man's hypocrisy, right? But, but when you see the law in your New Testament, which you should think is, you should think the Old Testament scriptures, God's righteous, just, and good commandments given to us in his word. And Israel was unique. Ancient Israel was unique in this way. They had received from God a law and God had given to them an understanding of what was good, what was right, what was holy, what was just. And then he gave this to Israel and said, you should live by this. And everybody, every standard that you have should be ultimately measured against my word. So it wasn't these human commands or precepts that were given, but it was a, it was a law given unto Moses that he should lead the children of Israel this way. And God's point in this was to say that they would be a light to the nations if you lived according to this law. Paul also uses the flesh. Now, this is really important. He doesn't mean like your body, like just your flesh. This was actually like an ancient heresy that the Gnostics is what they were called. And they would basically say that everything that is material, everything that is physical is evil. Only that which is spiritual is holy. That's not Christianity. We know this because our God, Jesus, was raised from the dead in a physical body that was restored. That's our future because of this. It's in Christ we have the God-man, the physical and the spiritual, come together as one, perfectly holy. God created the whole world, and he called it good, everything that was material, not just that which was immaterial. So when Paul says the flesh, he's not saying just your body. What he means is your firstborn self, your well-meaning, kind, smiley self. Wake up in the morning, generally, you know, whistle the Andy Griffith song to go to work and try to do the right thing, self. And you can make it about five to seven minutes before you do something that you wish you wouldn't have done. Say something you wish you wouldn't have said. You ever, you ever, you ever find yourself where you just wake up and you're already ma- mad about life? You don't know why. Just you're already not in a good mood. I always joke with my wife about this. Like, you went to bed happy, what happened, you know? Life, what is it? I don't know. But Paul talks about the flesh. He's just talking about our firstborn nature, what we're already bent towards. That's the flesh. Your firstborn nature broken by sin, your default. Now, I want you to walk with me on this. Think about what Paul's talking about here when he says the law. Although Paul talks about the law in a disparaging way sometimes, the law, Paul believes, and your New Testament will say, is good. The law is not, a, not an evil thing. The law is a great thing. It's just incapable of doing what only God can do. I want you to walk with me in a, just a short illustration of, of why Paul believes this. I want you to picture for me one week in time where the city of Houston, every human being just lived by the Ten Commandments from like sun up to sundown. Picture this with me. Everyone worshiped and honored God, like delighting in him as creator. Everyone rejected any other idol, any other substitute. Everyone honored the name of God with their lips. Like they, when they spoke of God, they spoke of him in a reverent way. Check this one out. Everyone stopped on the seventh day and rested. Just decided, you know what, we're going to rest one full time and we're going to give reverence to God, give our souls rest. Everyone honored their parents in word and deed. Just decided that was important. Everyone refused to murder. There was no murder. You never got, like you turn on the news, nothing happened today. I want you, I want, just, just so you guys know, like that might seem like, oh, well, that's not a big deal. Some of that might be because we live in a bubble. Did you know that uh, yesterday or the day before was the deadliest day in Chicago's history? 18 people were killed in one 24-hour period. That's it happened. I didn't see this any on any headline news. I just saw an article about 18 human beings were killed in 24 hours, murdered in Chicago. 
There was 239 people this year so far killed in Chicago. 239 people murdered in Chicago this year. That's nine more than last year, and we're in June. So I want you to think about that when you think about just one week where you turned on the news and you're like, you know what? Nobody killed anyone today. No one committed adultery on their spouse. Like that just didn't happen. No one committed theft, took another person's property. Like there was, you you got on Facebook and there was no mom ranting about the people that were rooting around in their car that night with flashlights, you know? You didn't have that like grainy Bigfoot picture of some teenager that was trying to steal your car that night in your driveway. Y'all know what I'm talking about? They're on Facebook. It's like, do you know this kid? It's like always some like shot of him, like a Bigfoot sighting. It's all grainy. You're trying to match that up with teenagers. (laughs) No one lied about anything or anyone. Didn't bear false witness. Didn't blame someone for somebody that wasn't true. Something wasn't true. No one lusted after their neighbor's loved ones or their neighbor's property. Now I want you to think about that. That's just the Ten Commandments. When we think about the Ten Commandments, isn't that just like kindergarten morality at some level? Like most of the things I just said, um, in kindergarten, you were on the sad tree if you did any semblance of those things. You know what I mean? We all pretty much agreed that those things are good. It'd be a great week, wouldn't it? Sadly, there has never been a day like this in human history since the fall. Let that sink in. There's never been a 24-hour period in human history like that. And yet the law still stands there saying, this is what God designed and desires. And and here's here's what I think we should ask ourselves. Shouldn't it be odd to us that we all sign off that that would be an amazing week and yet we can completely not do that? Now, like like we're incapable of accomplishing that? Now, I know what you're thinking because I think it too. You're like, well, I could do it, but it's my neighbors. They're the trouble. I could pull this off. Court, I'm not rummaging in people's cars. I love my spouse. I don't even own a gun. Some of you are like, well, no, that's, that's not true. <laughs> but that, that's the easiest way. The easiest way to look at that and say, well, of course, your weak analogy doesn't work because, you know, there aren't more people like me. Paul says, no, it's because there are more people like you and more people like me. See, we're really in a divided nation right now, but I want to say we are more united than you can ever imagine, and here's how. We are united in our brokenness. We're united in our human brokenness with an incapacity to do that which is right. You know, I just just quoted out the Ten Commandments, and, and, and most of those, eight out of the ten, are just talking about restraining and withholding from actively doing evil. Do you know there's an entire other side to the law, which is that we are called to actively be doing good, that I didn't even mention. Like I just said, don't kill people. I didn't say go be generous to people, right? I said, don't steal, not, hey, you should be a giver. (laughs) There's a whole other side to this. Could you imagine a world that wasn't just on the negative withholding and restraining evil, but actually actively doing good? It's crazy to think about. There's this cultural thought that we are good creatures that have been corrupted. I've seen this more recently, and, and I, Romans, the book of Romans, and particularly Romans 8, could not disagree more with this thought, that we are, we're born good, and then we get corrupted. We get corrupted by bad laws, or bad policies, or bad parenting, or bad history. And if we could just eliminate all that bad nurture stuff, we could live in a utopia. The Bible vehemently disagrees with this. <laughs> The Bible says that although there are bad laws, although there are bad policies, bad parenting, bad history, bad stuff, 
that the reason that all those things are bad are because not of nurture, but of nature, namely sinful nature, that we're born corrupt. And that these things go down to the very core of who we are. They go down to our decision-making. They go down to our desires. One way to put it is that you can decide that something is good. You can decide that you want to pursue the good, but you can't choose to want what you want all the time because a firstborn, your firstborn nature wants the wrong things, desires the wrong things. And that desire is as natural to you as hunger is. The desire to sin. There's a, um, a British novelist named William Golding. Most of you know this guy, even though you don't know, you know, you, you know this guy. Um, he wrote a book called The Lord of the Flies. So many of us read this, right, whenever we were in, we were in high school. If you're, if you're anything like me, you probably read it and just kind of skimmed over. It didn't kind of c- quite catch the, you know, why do I want to read a book about, you know, these British kids on an island together, you know? Uh, but there's so much in the Lord of the Flies. It's about a group of boys who were stranded. They get plane wrecked on an island. Uh, they try to learn to survive as best they can alone. And they quickly turn to this form of hierarchical structures with leaders and followers. And they end up actually accidentally killing one of, the, one of their own kids before they're rescued. And the point of the novel is that human nature is dark. And the idea that we could simply nurture human nature into something wholly good and selfless is not only wishful thinking, it's, it's untrue and damaging. Because if we think that we can just legislate what really is going on in the human heart, if we think we could just manage it, if we could just manicure it, then in the end, we're only gonna perpetually get worse. Or as C.S. Lewis says, that knowledge, if you don't address the human heart, knowledge without love just makes a man a more clever devil. It's just you become more clever at the evil that you intend. William Golding, uh, when they asked him in his older years what brought him, you know, he didn't always think this about human nature. He used to think before he wrote this novel and really before a very significant time in his life that that just like our culture thinks that you're born okay. Listen to his quote here, though, uh, after, and as an older man, when they asked him why he had a change of heart, he says, before the Second World War, I believed in the perfectibility of social men that a correct structure of society would produce goodwill, and that therefore you could remove all social ills by reorganization of society. But after the war, I did not because I was unable to. I had discovered what one man could do to another. And I must say that anyone who moved through those years without understanding that man produces evil as a bee produces honey must have been blind or wrong in the head. Man produces evil like a bee produces honey. What does he mean by that? By his very nature. Now, now Paul's point here is the same, and you might be thinking, this is dark. It is. It's the only dark backdrop that there can, the light of the gospel can really shine on. You have to understand where Paul's coming from here. And Golding walked through the, the war-torn streets of Europe. He walked through the concentration camps of the the Germans and the Nazis, and he said, when I saw what another man could do to his fellow man, I knew that there's no policies that can fix this. There's no way you can legislate this. You can't manicure this. Or one way to put it is you, you know, I loved Winston Churchill's uh, comment about um, negotiating with Hitler. You know, he said, you cannot negotiate with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. 
And this is the flesh. This is, you don't negotiate with the flesh as, it, as your head is in its mouth. It owns you. You can't negotiate with the flesh. You can't barter with the flesh. And when you, each time we do, we end up losing that battle. That's Paul's point here. Our default is sin. And the law is good. You know, James describes the law as a mirror. My wife, uh, ladies, you might have one of these. My wife has one of these mirrors. It's a, a real tragic tool. It, it's got this LED light around the, yeah, you girls know what I'm talking about, right? It's like a makeup mirror or something or vanity mirror. So you look into this mirror. First of all, it's like a magnifying glass, which I don't want to look at myself that close, okay? And so you look into yourself in this mirror and it just zooms in on you and you're like, oh my God, this is what's really here. And then it's got this, I don't know, sensor on it. As soon as it senses that you're close enough, then the lights come on on this thing. And the lights are just blinding and it makes everything worse. It's why I like dull lighting in rooms. I'm like, oh, life is better like this. But when this light comes on, it's like every imperfection that you have on your face. Girls, I don't know how you live, by the way. That's just awful. This is your every morning routine. But it just shines a light on everything. James says the law is like this. The law is like a mirror. And it, it just, it reveals the truth about what is. It shows you what's in your teeth. It shows you what's going on <laughs> on your face. You can't live under the pretense that you're, you're not muddy and filthy anymore when you look into that mirror. You know, it's like you can't, you, this is what a unibrow is when you look in that, right? You know, it's me. <laughs> But here's the thing, this is what Paul's getting at. The law cannot straighten our crooked minds or cleanse our crooked hearts, our dirty hearts, any more than a mirror can clean our teeth or straighten our hair. It just shows you what is. It has no ability to then, then you gotta do like all this stuff, right? To try and, try and manicure that if you're looking into the mirror. And here's what Paul is saying. The moment we try to do all this stuff to try to fix what the law has shown us in our hearts, it actually just keeps perpetuating and making it worse. We keep trying to manage the flesh or barter with the flesh or like make ourselves more presentable to God and to others. And, and, and Paul says it, it gets worse. This is Jesus's arguments with the Pharisees over and over again. They kept trying to manage and manicure. Once the law had shown them just how dirty they were, they were trying to fix it. They're trying to man and make themselves look pretty to others, make themselves look pretty to God. And Jesus kept telling them, the Lord already sees your heart and your virtue. It just made you a more wicked more clever devil that you know more, but you can't fix what's going on inside. One of his analogies to the, to the Pharisees is that if you just clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is filthy, why would you drink from it? This is managing the flesh. Okay, so why is Paul rejoicing here though? He's rejoicing because God has done something that you and I can't do. Now, I, I needed to start where I started because here's what we need to remember. We need a miracle. We need a miracle. We can't, like, what's gonna happen in the gospel? It, it can't just be normal everyday life because normal everyday life for you and me is going to bend a certain way and it's gonna bend towards the flesh. We need a miracle. We need God to do something unique. And that's exactly what Romans 8 tells us. He does something Unique. He does something miraculous. God shows up to us in the gospel and he knows what he's getting himself into. He's getting himself into the messiest of messy. You and me are the messiest of messy. He knows that about us. 
John chapter 2 says that Jesus needed no one to testify to him about what was in man because he himself knew. He already knew what all these guys were like. When he chooses the 12, I want you to think, he knows Peter. He, he knows what he's getting into, and he's entirely interested in getting into that with us. So here's what the, here's what the scripture says, Romans 8. Now, kicking off in verse 3 of the back half. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What does he do? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. No, instead of trying to perfect us through the law, God shows up and does what the law is hindered in doing. The law cannot do. It's not strong enough to change the human heart, but God is not hindered like the law. So he shows up embodied in flesh, perfectly Holy and righteous, he is the embodiment of the law of God lived out each and every day, each and every moment. That analogy I gave you about one week of holiness, Jesus was 33 and a half years of it embodied. It's incredible, isn't it? Never, in, and that's just with the Ten Commandments. Think of every single one of God's laws. If you take the whole Old Testament, Jesus is an embodied perfection, and God shows up that way. And then what does he do? He takes on the identity of you and me. It says, the scriptures actually say, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin for us. Galatians chapter 3, he became a curse for us. So he takes on our identity. In a, a miraculous turn of events, Christ becomes the filth that you and I were living in. Scripture says that he sends his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The reason for that is because God doesn't send down a superhero like Superman, right? He sends down a Galilean Nazarite that looks like me and you, and yet without sin. And then I want you to think about how verse number three is correlated to verse number one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse number three, because Christ condemned sin in the flesh. He absorbed the condemnation. Those two words are connected. It's not because there is no condemnation for sin. It's because the condemnation that is for sin was absorbed in Christ. And now you and I don't have to bear that penalty because Christ absorbed it for us. All the condemnation that was meant for us was absorbed in Christ. He took that requirement and then he extends to us his righteousness. I love what Charles Spurgeon has to say about condemnation. This is, this is a quote from him in one of his sermons. If you get condemnation out of the gospel, you put it there yourself. It is not the gospel, but it is your rejection of the gospel that will condemn you. When you embrace the gospel, you, the condemnation is gone forever. And any condemnation that you now place into the gospel is only added there by you. Why? Because Christ, the perfect, righteous son of God, absorbed it already. It's gone now, this is amazing because it means that the law that we could not uphold has already been upheld, and all of the penalties that come along with it have been absorbed. And what God has done alone here is give us the peace and safety that we could never have any way else. Now, I want you to think of this. Christ on the cross, brutally scarred, tattered for our iniquities, and yet loving us until the very end. Doesn't this give you more color into his words where he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Even on the cross that Christ is doing this, he's, he's loving us. He knew full well what we'd be. He knew full well. Romans 6 will tell us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It means that while we were still in the midst of it, 
that he knew what we were and loves us in that mess. And he has a plan and purpose that we wouldn't stay in that mess. This single act of love frees us from ever from the bondage of sin, death, and the law because of our countless sinful infractions, all of them. We were condemned until Christ stood in our place. Now, listen how Paul ends this, and this is key. He's going to end this, and there's two major theological points that you and I need to grasp here. Notice that, again, we've still not gotten to any commands. But listen to these promises he's about to talk about, starting in verse 4. He did all of this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. (laughs) I love it. All of this was done in order that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. Now, you would think that Paul would say in Christ, because that's true. It was fulfilled in Christ when he lived perfectly. But Paul says, no, 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 it would be fulfilled in you. Now, how is that possible? There's two ways. Now, these are big theological terms, but they're important to grasp. Number one is a theological term called imputation. The righteous requirement of the law gets fulfilled in us through imputation. What happens, Martin Luther called the great exchange, when we believe in Christ, we are imputed or given, it's conferred to us his righteousness. And our sin, our shame, our folly is conferred to Christ on the cross. When, he's, when Jesus dies on the cross, all of, his sin, all of the sin of humanity is condemned, but by faith we receive Christ's righteousness. So the righteous requirement of the law, when you read the Old Testament and there's a perfection required, did you know that in Christ, that's what you are? By faith, perfect. That's incredible. It's fulfilled in you because of faith. Now there's a second wave of this. Now this second wave, in my opinion, is one of the implicits that John Piper talks about in Romans 8, where there's this implicit command. It's not explicit, but we kind of get the drift. There's a second way that the righteousness of God is fulfilled in us, and it's this. It's that now by the spirit of God that fills us when we believe in Christ, we are empowered to walk according to the Holy Spirit and fulfill the law of God with the principle of love that Jesus gave us on earth. Remember Jesus the night before he was crucified? He says, I give you a new commandment, love one another. That's a massive moment. It's it's in the Passion Week, the Holy Week. He's telling them, love one another and in so doing, you'll fulfill the whole law. In this principle, this law of love that Christ gives us, when the Spirit fills us and empowers us and we drive towards that goal of loving God and loving neighbor, we can not fulfill the law perfectly, although we are seen perfectly in the sight of God because of Christ, but we can fulfill the law of God as we stumble towards obedience. Grace being this amazing net that catches us as we fall and then just sets our feet back aright and we pursue love all over again. And we pursue love all over again. And we pursue love all over again. See, the obedient lives of born-again people is, is Paul's aim here. That there's this way that we can be worshipful in our lives. And you guys know what I'm talking about here. I don't want you to think that the spirit is basically the angel on your shoulder and then you have the devil, which is your flesh, and there's this battle going on. That's not what Paul gives us the, uh, the picture of. Instead, the spirit is God himself emb- embodying you, filling you. And then now you have power to live a life of love. And that, yes, the spirit speaks to you, but it's not like, oh, I really hope that, you know, court's going to do the right thing here. 
No, it's a totally supernatural miracle that I'm even wanting to do it. Paul says it like this. We have a new heart with new desires. You start to want to want Jesus. It's crazy what happens. You see, no, Christians don't live by a list of do's and don'ts, and here's why. Because either you'll change the list as you realize how bad you are at at keeping it, right? Or you'll start to be so proud of your list that you'll fall and break at least two or three on the list in your pride. But on the flip side, Christians don't live their life on the fly saying, you know what, it's not a big deal because Jesus paid for it. This is Romans chapter 6. We should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. We don't just live on the fly. Because our default is not spirit. Our default is flesh. So what do we do? We live by the spirit, hearing, believing, acting. We don't look to the law for hope. We look to Christ. You see, the law is a great teacher. It's a great, wise, sharp, harsh teacher. But Jesus gives us life. So here's what I want to end with. I want you to do this for me and and. I took this from uh, Pastor Ray Ortland. He did this with his church. Uh, I'm not going to assume that you've ever done this, but perhaps many of us have. Why not this morning, as I pray, ask God the Holy Spirit, say, I open my heart to you. Would you fill my heart? Genuinely, this is, this is scriptural. This is what Romans talks about, that the Holy Spirit fills our hearts and changes us from the inside out. And at times... Um, it's interesting, I've been pastored by other pastors at times, and, and as a pastor, I forget this, is that many times we know the theological truth, we just do nothing with it. And so we don't do simple things like, for instance, you feel like the enemy has buffeted you in condemnation. Do you ever say, Jesus, would you make that stop? Well, no, I just deal with it. You know, I just read scripture more. That's managing the flesh. <laughs> Did you know that? You're like, I keep getting bent to do the wrong thing, so what do you do? I buckle down and do the right thing. what if we decided to say, I'm too weak to do the right thing. Holy Spirit, would you fill me? So that's what I want us to do. I'm going to pray for us, then I want you to do that as as Brennan and the team lead us. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll, I'll, I'll lead us in prayer. Father, for my friends, under the sound of my voice, we confess to you that we often manage the flesh And we forget to rely on the Spirit. Forgive us, God, when we just double down on trying to do things on our own strength. And forgive us when we fall into either pride or despair at the results. And instead, this morning, we open our hands. There's nothing in them. And we pray, we ask, Holy Spirit, would you now fill us and do what only you can do? Would you help? Help us to pursue and to live a life of love in your name. Would you now wipe away the stains of condemnation that plague us and open the windows for the life of the Spirit to dwell? We trust you. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.